Thank you, Marissa. Good evening. Glad to see you all. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Jeff Nye, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I, I want us to, to pray as we step into this text uh, and ask uh, the Spirit, uh, ask God through His Spirit to speak to us. So I'm going to ask, would you pray for me that God would give me clarity of words to say what it is that, that God is saying to us in this text, and, and let me pray for you. God, I'm asking that you would uh, open our eyes to see with clarity things that maybe we've missed before, and you'd open our ears to hear uh, in fresh ways what we've maybe missed before. Um, God, for, for some of us, the, the, this text and the, these ideas are things that we're familiar with and have become commonplace, um, but God, these are not common things. So would you help us to hear from you and see you clearly tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, as we're stepping out of the season of Advent, we've spent the last four weeks in what the church has always called the season of Advent, where it's, it's a way in which the church enters into the early years of Israel as they were waiting for Jesus to come. There was this hope and anticipation and longing for the Savior that God had promised to come. And in the same way, we as the church long for and wait for Christ to come again. And so this season is actually intended to be a regular annual repetition that shapes our hearts to wait in the ways that we should be waiting for Messiah. Now, here's the thing. As we step out of Advent into this world, into normal part of the year, not the part that's surrounded by jingle bells and and Starbucks fancy holiday cups, but actually just the normal part of the year. I think there's something here that we, we need to, to, to see, because I, I've had conversations with a number of us, a uh, number of you, and, and I feel this in my own heart. I really am hoping that something happens Thursday night, something magical, and we wake up Friday morning, the first day of the new year, and it's no longer 2020. And by that, I mean, it won't be 2020, but I mean, it won't be 2020, right? I mean, we're just kind of hoping that somehow COVID's going to go, oh, the calendar changed. Goodbye, right? But it ain't going to happen. I mean, I, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, but it ain't going to happen. Like, there's nothing magical going to happen Thursday night, and all of a sudden, the anxieties that we have felt this year culturally are just going to disappear. We're not going to wake up Friday morning and just magically, COVID's gone, masks are gone, we can hug again, we can gather again in person and not worry about it. We're not going to wake up Friday morning and all of a sudden everybody's like politically harmonious. It'd be really nice, huh? We're not going to wake up Friday morning and all the racial tensions of the last year behind us and we're past that. We still exist in a weary world, don't we? And what we've been praying towards and singing about in Advent is this hope in the, that speaks into the weariness of this world. So here's a question. Once we leave this season of Advent, what does it mean to actually engage like people that have been changed by the season of Advent? And when we do that, here's, as I thought about this, I kept coming back to the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, if you've grown up in the church at all, John the Baptist is not a new name. You've heard of this guy. But it's interesting how much we've heard the name John the Baptist and how little time we've actually spent looking at his ministry. Now, there's actually a good reason for that, because the whole point of John the Baptist's ministry is that we wouldn't see John the Baptist. The whole point of John the Baptist's ministry is to point us to Jesus. 
But there's something I think we can learn from John the Baptist that will shape how we live in the normal weariness of this world and in the year to come. Part of it is because of the similarities of his time to our time. We, we live in a time of uh, dark days of uncertainty, but the nation of Israel at, this, at the beginning of the first century found themselves in a very similar situation. Israel had been a mighty nation and hundreds of years before had been uh, kicked out of their land and subjugated by another nation. Then another nation took over that nation, and eventually Israel makes its way back to this land, but they're no longer in charge. They're living under Roman occupation. The people that used to be a, a bright and shiny, uh, shining uh, city on a hill are now under the oppression of another ruler. There's political upheaval. At, at this time, what you found was a lot of regional leaders that were competing against each other, arguing for their political superiority over another. There was political uncertainty. Sounds familiar. They were in a culture full of division. Inside of Israel, this once unified people that had unified around God's promises to those people were now bitterly divided. Different sects and different uh, sections of Judaism were fighting against each other, contending for who had superiority. Much like the church in our day, a church that ought to be unified, right? Right? This is good. We're, we're going to have to do this. You guys are going to have to respond. We ought to be unified, but we're not. Israel should have been unified, but they weren't. And the landscape was repeat, were riddled with competing saviors. Josephus and some of the other early historians will tell us that there were people that kept standing up and proclaiming that they were a prophet sent from God, that they were some redeemer of Israel, some person uh, who was going to beat back the Roman rule and raise Israel back up to prominence again, only for them to leave with their tail behind their, or between their legs because they got beat out. Sounds like today, we're, compete, we're constantly living in a world where everybody is saying, this thing will save us, that thing will save us. This ideology, that leader, this, this political party, this, whatever this is will save us. And in the same way, it had been 400 years. When John the Baptist shows up, it had been 400 years since a prophet of God in Israel had spoken. And I can assure you that there were many in Israel that thought, those things will never come to pass. Those things that the prophets promised would never happen. And we live in a world in which the promises that Jesus has made, we find ourselves 2,000 years past, and some are going, he's not coming. In other words, our landscape, the, the world that we live in is very similar to the one that John the Baptist did ministry in. Now, I, I want to make it very, very clear. We are not called to the same thing John the Baptist was called to. John the Baptist had a unique calling in the history of redemption. No one else has ever been called to do exactly what he did. And yet, and yet, there's something in the way he did ministry that ought to form and shape the way we live in the world today. There's three things I want us to turn our attention to. The first is John, John's confession. The second is his testimony. And the third is his posture. The first I want us to look at is John's confession, then I want to look at John's testimony, then I want to look at John's posture. 
Read with me the text that Marissa just read. Let's, let's turn our attention to it. Pull out your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 1. Start in verse 6. John writes this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Later on in verse 19, it says this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophets? And he said, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Go on to verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them. I baptize with water, but listen to this. But among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You see, central to the ministry of John the Baptist is a confession. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. John didn't see himself as the hope of anything. John didn't see himself as the Savior. John knew his whole job was to point to somebody else, right? Now, I think, I think if I took a poll and I asked you guys to vote, are you the Christ? Are you the Savior of the world? Are you the hope of all things? I think I can pretty safely say all of you are going to go, no, I'm not. You want to t- should we take a straw poll here? Maybe we should just say, hey, if you are the Christ, could you stand up real quick? Tell us. Okay, good. I was hoping no one was going to stand. That was going to be really awkward. I don't think any of us think that we're the hope of the universe. And yet I'm afraid that sometimes we act as if we think we are. In other words, sometimes we go about our lives, we go about our day-to-day lives thinking that we actually are, we're pretty top-notch stuff. I've got something to offer the world, and they would benefit from my wisdom, from my expertise. We think that if I don't do such and such, then something won't work out the way it should. We think that if only people will vote like us, think like us, speak like us, the world does get along a little bit better. We come into relationships thinking, I've got to have this secret way in the world. I have to have this secret knowledge, secret, uh, somehow my presence just changes the game. And we engage in relationships in such a way that we actually think that we make the difference. But acting as if everything hinges on us isn't gospel at all. It's not gospel ministry. But see, this, con- this confession of John's, I am not the Christ, does not lead to inaction. It leads to right action. The confession that John says, I am not the Christ, does not lead to inaction. But it does lead to right action. We've got lots of examples of this kind of way of living in the world in the, old, or in the, in the Bible I think about David. David didn't come up to Goliath going, hey, Goliath, I got five black belts in different martial arts specialties. You better back off. David didn't strut because he was strong and powerful and awesome. He stood up there knowing that there was somebody else who was powerful for him, right? 
Moses didn't walk into Pharaoh's court and go, hey, I'm smarter than you. I'm more powerful than you. Do what I say. He came in and said, the Lord says. His hope was in somebody else, right? When Abraham leaves his, the place of his forefathers and goes to a new place, he didn't go because he had a great map that was going to lead him to this. He didn't have all this wisdom. He went because the God who saved him sent him and was going ahead of him. When we look at Peter, Peter doesn't lead the early church. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, tell people to pick up their mat and walk out because he's, he's hot stuff. He says, I don't have anything to offer you except for what the grace that God's already given to me. I'm not the hope of the world Jesus is. And Paul doesn't run around planting churches all over Asia Minor because he had a really good church planting prospectus. He goes even through beatings and ridicule because he had his hope in somebody else. In other words, if I think that Christ is the Savior, it's going to change the way I act in the world. The the way, if I've been shaped by this confession, I am not the Christ, it will form the way I live in the world. Here's a few ways in which our lives ought to portray this kind of hope. We ought to be people who are not anxious. Why? My hopes in one who's already sitting on a throne, who's already defeated death. Why am I anxious? Our lives should be shaped in such a way that we're not grasping for control because it's not our control that does anything. When we live in this confession, it ought to drive us to a life of prayer. Now I know I'm meddling. A people whose confession is, I am not the Christ, but knows who their Christ is, will be a praying people. Because we're asking that Savior to be our Savior. And if we're marked by this confession, we'll be present. Because we're not trying to run away from the situations around us. We're not trying to run away from the relationships around us because we know that there's still hope. I'm not the Christ, but I know who the Christ is. We, Frontline Yukon, are not the savior of our community. We are not the Christ. We're ambassadors of the savior, but we're not the savior himself. We aren't planting this church right now because Yukon needs us. I want want that to sink in just to say, I know we know that. Yukon doesn't need Frontline. Yukon needs Jesus. The only reason we're here is because Jesus has sent us here. We are not the Christ. This is our confession. See, if we make this confession, there's a second confession that follows. If we make this confession that we are not the Christ, there's a second one that follows. Look at John uh, chapter 1, verse 29. And the next day... He saw Jesus, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, 
But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. It's interesting here because John the Baptist answers a question that nobody was asking. Nobody around John the Baptist was looking over there at Jesus going, hey, is that, is that the Lamb of the God? Is that the Lamb of God? Is that, is that the Son of the God that's been waiting? People were oblivious. They might have wondered who this weirdo was who was preaching, but they weren't asking, is that the Lamb of God? The, the question wasn't even on, on their mind. John doesn't just give them an answer. He actually gives them a question. It reminds me of one of the greatest movies of all time, The Matrix. And if you want to act like that's not one of the best movies of all time, we can fight afterwards. How in the world is it 21 years old? I don't know. But in this movie, and if you haven't seen it, repent and go watch it, Neo is introduced to Morpheus. And Morpheus begins to not just answer Neo's questions, he begins to give him new questions to even be asking, right? When, Neo, when, when Morpheus offers the two pills to Neo, Neo takes the red pill, which introduces a whole new set of questions. What's real in the world? What's not real in the world? You see, what Morpheus doesn't come and do for Neo is simply answer the questions he has. He comes and he brings new questions that have new answers. And so often, that's exa- so much, that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing here. John the Baptist is trying to get them to see something they're not even seeing, to ask a question they're not even asking, to help them realize that there's something going on in the world that they are oblivious to. So John the Baptist says, you know who you should be, what you should be asking is who's that guy? And let me tell you, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He stands and he says, that, that man, right there, is the Son of God. You see, when we engage the world like John the Baptist, we're not just simply answering questions people are asking. We're helping them learn to ask the right questions. We're helping them learn to see things that they're missing. Neo was caught in this illusion of a world in which he thought things were real but weren't real. And what he needed was to actually be introduced to true reality. It's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. You think, Israel, that you know what's going on, but you don't. God himself has come to be with us in Jesus. When we do this, we are, we are being witnesses of this Christ. We are actually telling people and showing people and helping them understand the reality of who Christ is. That they understand that this hope of Advent is actually standing right in front of us. We become heralds of what is real and what is true in the world. So if our first confession is a real confession, we are not the Christ. And if our, that leads to a second confession in which we testify who Christ is and the hope of the gospel, the question is, what's that look like? 
I wanted to come up with a really cool illustration, an example, and I just couldn't. But I just also don't know if I can find a better one than this. John the Baptist is kind of like a laser pointer. You know what I'm talking about? The thing you annoy cats with? Oh, just me? A laser pointer. Nobody looks at a laser pointer and goes, oh, that's awesome, and stares at your hand, right? When you're using a laser pointer, they look ahead to where the red dot is telling them they should focus. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. He's saying from a posture, don't look at me, look over there. John is like a first century laser pointer. John 1 verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, and look at this, and two of his disciples heard him say this, and then they turned and followed Jesus. Turn on to chapter 3, verse 25. Now at this point, the, the context, John is doing his ministry, he's, he's baptizing and pointing people to Jesus, but now Jesus has started his ministry. And so they're both around, walking around Judea, proclaiming this gospel, this good news that we just celebrated at Christmas. And this is what happens in verse 25. Now a discussion arose among, or between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, speaking of Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. John answered, a person can receive, or cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear, witness, or bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, and I, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. See, John the Baptist is preaching and preparing the way for Jesus. And now Jesus is starting to do ministry. And people are starting to leave John and go follow Jesus. Now, for us as Christians, that makes total sense, right? I'd much rather follow Jesus than John. But in this day, the, the reputation of a prophet hinged on how many people followed him. So if I was a man or you were a man or a woman of prominence in the first century, it was by how many people gathered around you when you spoke. How many people followed you when you gave directions. Your number of followers dictated a lot of your identity. I know that's not at all like today. Twitter and Instagram has nothing to do with how many followers to shape my identity, right? What does John do? John's watching his disciples leave him and go follow Jesus. And everybody comes around him and goes, John, hey, hey, hang on. You're doing something wrong, bro. Maybe you get some nice lights and fog machine and people will probably hang around. Maybe you, maybe you feed them a good meal and they'll stay. Like, man, you're just kind of a downer. Like if, you just would, if you just be a little more peppy, they'd probably follow you. See, the people watch this happened, and they don't know what to do because John's just not concerned. John rejoices that people are leaving, following him, and going to follow Jesus. He's not interested in building his following. His following doesn't mean anything. 
the whole point is for people to see Jesus. See, John is a first century laser pointer. He's turning the attention away from him over to Jesus. He's happy to see people leave him and follow Jesus. See, guys, we don't want to we want to, as a church, point to Jesus. We're not attracting attention to ourselves or to Frontline. We're not interested in, in trying to get people to follow our tribe. I'm just not interested in that because Jesus isn't interested in that. We want people to see Jesus. I want to show you an art piece you've probably seen before, but it's just one of my favorites. Painted by a guy named Grunewald. This is the uh, Eisenheim altarpiece. What do you see? I want you to take just a second, take it in. What do you see? Where does your eye go first? If I had a laser pointer, which if I would have thought ahead, I would. We, our eye goes straight to the middle, right? Jesus on the cross. Like our eyes go directly there. I love Right to, the, to our right, to Jesus' left, John the Baptist. Point. That sums up John the Baptist's entire ministry. Is look over there. Look over there. Look over there. In a day and an age surrounded by anxiety, look over there. In a year like 2020, look over there. As we step into 2021, I don't know what to expect, but look over there. Fleming Rutledge says this in her brilliant book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. She says this, Speaking of John the Baptist, this voice crying in the wilderness, this lantern which shone in front of the Son of God, is extraordinary in many ways, but most of all in the single-mindedness with which he pursued his mission even to death. For the John the Baptist feared no man, not even Herod the king, and no woman either, not even Herod's wife, who in the end arranged to have his head cut off. But let us take note, this firebrand who recognized no superior was utterly submissive before the one whose coming he lived and died to illuminate. John said to them, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of a sandal. To be the witness, to point away from himself to Jesus Christ, this is the destiny of John. And in these things, he is a model for every Christian preacher. Let me edit her last statement and just say, he's the model for every Christian. This is our job. This is our job, to point at Jesus and to get out of the way. Point at Jesus and get out of the way. So here's my question to us tonight. Is John's confession our confession? I don't mean just in words. I mean actually in the way that we live our lives. Do we live our lives as if we're not the Christ? Is John's testimony our testimony? That the one who is the hope of the world is not just a general hope, but he's my hope. He's our hope. And third, is his posture our posture? 
I would love to say that those three things are completely true of my life. But these are things I'm trying to lean towards. That if we are to learn anything from Advent, is to learn to walk in the way of John the Baptist, that our confession is we are not the Christ, that our testimony is of who, who Jesus is, and that our posture is simply pointing to him. And that will only be true as we actually do what John tells us to do. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We cannot point to Jesus for other people to see Jesus if we're not looking at Jesus. We cannot point to the hope of Christ while our hope is in other things. What Jesus is doing in our hearts, he's doing as we behold him, as we see him as he is. We need, we need him as Savior. We need him as hope. But as we see him as our Savior, and as he is our hope, our lives will start to look like John the Baptist. We will quickly confess we are not the Christ. We will testify to who he is, and we'll point to Jesus and get out of the way. Now, I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know where you're coming in, whether you come in from church background or not. The question I have for you is, have you seen him as the Lamb of God? Have you seen Jesus not just as a Savior, but your Savior? As not just a Redeemer, but your Redeemer? Is Jesus that for you? If not, he's inviting you to that hope tonight. If you're coming in tonight weary of the last year, then let me just say I am too. But our hope and our weariness is in the fact that he is the Christ. He is our hope. He is our redeemer. And here's what I want us to be marked by as a church. I want us to be marked by a people who have John's confession, who have John's testimony, and have John's posture. Jesus be our hope. Father, we're asking that you would shape us, teach us. God, I want to be like John the Baptist, not because I've worked really hard at it, but because you've changed my heart to be like him. We want to be formed by this good news. We want to be shaped by John's confession. I pray for, for some of us in the room that may, we've maybe even said the words that Jesus is our hope, but we actually, our hope's not there. I pray would you work in our hearts to see you as we ought to see you. Trust you as we ought to trust you. Meet us where we are, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.